We're again in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We begin this morning at verse 15. And if you will turn to that place in your copy of the living Word of God for our time of uh, exposition this morning. We're going to talk about the one whose face we will see. We will behold his face. We will have the great, great, great joy of seeing our Redeemer. We will be indeed perfect, no sin. We'll have fellowship with him for all eternity. That's what's going to happen for the child of God. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I am using the subject for these verses this morning, God's chosen servant. Matthew's gospel is replete with Old Testament text showing that Jesus of Nazareth is not other than the prophesied Messiah. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 13, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 26. All those chapters have texts that tell us that Jesus Christ is Messiah. And the text before us in verses 18 through 12 is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4. And Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 is a messianic passage. It is a description of the coming Messiah 700 years in advance of his appearance in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew's purpose, or purposes, in placing the passage here is at least twofold, maybe three, but two at least. He was to, it was to assure his readers that Jesus's ministry was consistent with Old Testament expectations of Messiah. Second, to contrast the violent opposition and hostility of the Pharisees with the gentleness of the Lord's servant as depicted in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. In verse 15 of this text, Jesus, as you saw and heard read, was aware of his enemies' conspiracy to destroy him. They hated him. The hatred was escalating. 
As we saw last week, they conspired, according to Mark, with the Herodians, their very own enemies. And they together sought to destroy our Lord. Jesus, being aware of this, verse 15, withdrew from there. His withdrawal, or change of venue, wasn't out of fear. Rather, it was out of discretion in doing what was necessary to accomplish the great end or purpose for which he had come into the world, namely the atoning death on the cross for sinners. You need to understand something about Jesus' ministry and his enemies. No time, his time to die was already on the divine schedule. It was unalterably scheduled in eternity past by the Council of the Holy Trinity. And no one, even the most powerful on earth, could change what had been planned to occur by the triune God. It was going to happen precisely when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had determined it would happen in human history. In other words, man was impotent until God allowed man to achieve divine objectives. We can see this reality really clearly enunciated by Luke in his gospel. If you just keep your finger here, and I want you to see something in Luke. I, I love this passage, Luke chapter 13. And we will see that the control that Jesus had as he was following his father's time schedule. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Have you found that place? Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And now notice our Lord's reply. I love this. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. <laughs> Doesn't sound like he's afraid to me, does it? <laughs> when he calls uh, him Fox, he is saying he's a crafty person. He's a worthless person. But beyond that, Jesus says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. What Jesus is saying in that expression, I'm going to complete what God has demanded me, commanded me to do. I'm moving toward the goal that has been determined for me, and I am going to complete it. Jesus was on a divine schedule, and he would continue his ministry. He would continue his journey. He was going to go, you'll see in verse 33, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He would reach Jerusalem, the place where the sacrifices were altered, the offered, the place where prophets were murdered. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners. And Herod could not stop that. Jesus on the divine time schedule. Jesus said it further in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, these words. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it 
from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is saying, I'm in control of my life. No man can take it from me. I'm in charge, and I will lay it down when it's appropriate, and I will take it up on the third day. There's another text. If you're not sure that Jesus is in control, I'm going to show you one that makes it quite clear. John chapter 18. His enemies came out to arrest him. John chapter 18. Verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. By the way, just side note, the he there is not there. That's the translation. He just said, I am. He was using the divine name. I am who I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there. In verse 6, get this. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now you tell me who's in charge. <laughs> All he had to say was identify himself as the I am. And they fall over like dominoes. Because he is in charge. So when Jesus withdrew from where he was, he was doing it because he was on a time schedule. He was headed to Jerusalem to die at an appropriate time, the time scheduled by God, the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit for him to die. Go back with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12. As we pick up the story, we see the Lord's in charge. And many people followed him, verse 15, and he healed them all. This was on the Sabbath day, apparently. And as they were following him after the healing of the man uh, who had the withered hand, remember that in the synagogue, many others heard about it, and they're healed as well. And then in verse 16, he warned them not to tell who he was. Now, you wonder, why the warning? Why not disclose your identity? Why keep this from the populace? Why not tell everybody who you are? Let's give a few reasons why we think this is the case. First, the miracles that Jesus performed were acts of mercy, to be sure. They revealed the compassionate nature of God for human beings in their misery. No question about that. But the primary purpose for physical healings was for a spiritual purpose. A greater purpose. His powerful, pervasive, instantaneous healings of a multitude of people was to display his divine power. And to get this, his rightful claim to Messiahship. When he did these miracles, it was clear that he is indeed Messiah. 
And his greater purpose in revealing himself as Messiah was that men might come to him savingly. He came to save souls. Why would tell them, don't tell that you, you're here for that reason? But you see, his healings could inflame the zealots' enthusiasm for him as a political and military leader which mo most Jews expected Messiah to be, do understand that. If you need to understand in the New Testament, when you read through it and you see the opposition to Jesus and you see what they were doing, they were not looking for a spiritual deliverer. They were not looking for someone who would save them from their sins. They were looking for a political deliverer. Deliver me from my earthly oppressor. In a word, they wanted a militaristic Messiah. You say, well, preacher, pastor, how do you know that? I ain't speculating. <laughs> I know this because we find in the Bible. Remember Jesus said the, fed the 5,000. A miracle, 5,000. Those are men, the text says, and there were obviously women and children there. So probably 20,000 people were fed miraculously by Jesus. He's just creating food, creating food, and people are getting full, and they have a wonderful time. So, wow, what power. And according to John 6:15, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Now, do understand something. Jesus was king. He was the Jews' rightful king. In fact, he was born to be king. And this book of Matthew, his genealogy, demonstrates that he is the king of the Jews. And he will rule over the nation of Israel. That's going to happen right here on planet Earth. But you need to understand something. The cross came before the crown suffering before the glory. That's the way God planned it. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, make this clear. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ now notice this and the glories to follow Christ was to come and to suffer the Old Testament taught that teaches that and then the glory would be subsequent to that so Jesus messiahship was designed by God and Jesus functioned according to the divine agenda for eternal ends, not temporal ones. That's why it's troubling if you allow me a moment just to comment on what we hear so often on um, so-called Christian television. When they make it seem that Jesus came here not for spiritual purposes, but for material ones. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. Your blessing is right around the corner. I will say to anybody, my biggest blessing that I've ever received or ever will receive is the salvation of my soul. There isn't enough money on this planet. There's not enough money in Fort Knox to trade one salvation for. 
the biggest blessing is to have your soul saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, if you're on your way to heaven, you can't top that as a blessing. Amen. I am not uh, impressed when they talk about somebody's billions. What I want to know, when you come to die, will you be rich toward God? Will you know him as Savior and Lord? Because no matter how many billions, how many blessings, how many fancy cars, whatever you have, you're going to leave it all behind one day. Amen. Amen. So don't confound uh, blessing of God with simply material things. No, no, God gives those. But the best thing is standing in a right relationship with the living God. Amen. Mm. Well, thank you for allowing me to say that. Jesus came to save souls. He came to deliver sinners from their bondage to sin. He came to set them free from the dominion and power of Satan. He came to take us out of Satan's domain and places in his kingdom, the kingdom of God's dearest son. And Jesus followed the divine order as the Bible predicted. Now, he is God's servant. And we can see this here in Matthew 12. And you can see verse 17. It says that he warned people not to tell it. It was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And so it indicated that the events of Jesus' life were divinely ordered. And now, as said earlier, we see what Matthew does. He places this prophetic text, this messianic text right here. And we're going to have a heading now. It's time for a heading. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? The commendation of God's servant. Verse 18. God is the speaker. He speaks through Isaiah, the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Behold, look at my servant, God is saying. Messiah is God's servant. He's the quintessential servant. That is, he is the perfect example of servant. Jesus said, I didn't come down from heaven to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. God says, I have chosen. A Greek term that means the Father irrevocably chose Jesus to be his servant. A divine servant. The only one qualified for the task of redemption. No less... One, then the eternal Son of God could fulfill the role of divine Redeemer. The choice was pretemporal, that is, before time began. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. God foreknew or foreordained that Jesus Christ would come into the world and would be the Redeemer. God says about him, He is my beloved. The Father loved the Son. And the, love, the, father, the son loved the father. In fact, the love between them was shared before the creation of the world. John chapter 17, verse 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
In Matthew 3.17, the father says about him that he loved him at his baptism, the same at his transfiguration. And then he says, here at the bottom of verse uh, where it says, my beloved in whom my soul is, here are the two words, well pleased. He is well pleased with his servant because of his perfection. He would be the sacrifice of the, for, on the cross who would be without spot, without blemish. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He pleased God. Jesus Christ did. Believers can please God too. We please God as we walk in the light, as we walk in the truth of Scripture as we seek to honor God by living lives that are consistent with his disclosed will in the word of God. That's how we please him. In fact, that is to be our pursuit. We are always to learn how to please God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. And only believers can please God. Unbelievers cannot please God. Not at all. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 says this, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. A sinner can't please God. A sinner is always being, is displeasing God because of his ungodly, sinful, evil, wicked, iniquitous life. He can't please God. There's nothing a sinner can do to ever please God except turn from his sin and believe on his son and be saved. Sit. And we have to recognize that. Do understand, when you talk to somebody who is not a Christian, do understand they are not people who please God because they're in the flesh, they're controlled by their sinfulness, and they need salvation. Until that comes, they cannot please Him. That's Bible. Next thing, that's the commendation for His servant. Verse 18, it continues. The Father says, I will put my spirit upon Him the empowerment of God's servant. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus during his earthly ministry. Now you need to understand the empowerment was not for his deity, obviously, because his deity didn't need empowerment, but his human nature did. In his incarnation, that is becoming a man, Christ submitted to the Father. And what the Holy Spirit did, he enabled his human nature to fully accomplish redemption in all other aspects of his ministry that God the Father had assigned him. For example, Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is, has anointed me, he is upon me, to preach the gospel to the poor. Even his death on the cross was enabled by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, uh, through the eternal spirit, the text says, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. Needed to be empowered by the Spirit to fulfill divine purpose. Um, if Jesus' perfect humanity needed the Holy Spirit, we show not do. We need the Spirit to function effectively in our spiritual gifts, to serve Christ, to evangelize. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said this when he was approaching the place where he would deliver his sermon before the people gathered before him. Spurgeon was mightily gifted. Uh, 
fluent with the language. Facility of language is almost unparalleled in the English-speaking world. But as he approached uh, the place where he speak there, he took 15 steps. And as he took each step, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He said that right up to the point he got to the place where he was going to deliver the word of God. What Spurgeon was saying, I am depending upon the Spirit of God to enable me to deliver the word of God. And so do we. We can't do anything effectively in the ch church, in the ministry, of, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, in this text here, we see the words, I will put my spirit upon him. You notice the, the I. And you notice the word spirit. And you notice the word him. Let me give you a little doctrine right now. The Trinity is not explicitly revealed in the Old Testament, but it is certainly implied there. From the New Testament, of course, we have the vantage point of fuller revelation. But here in this very verse, we can see the Trinity. The personal pronoun I refers to the Father. The noun spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. The pronoun him refers to the servant Messiah. There you have in this verse a reference to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A wonderful revelation of the truth of our tri triune God. Now as we look back from the perspective of fuller revelation that is afforded us in the New Testament. Now we move to the next heading, the message of God's servant. It says this, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Justice here is the Lord's truth and truth about the Lord. The servant of the Lord brings the truth of God to the world. That's what Jesus did. Everything he uttered was utter truth, absolute truth. Right from the Father, he told the truth about everything. Pilate said, what is truth? If he had listened to Jesus, he would have found out. Because Jesus spoke the truth. If you want to know what truth is, look at what the Word of God says. That's the truth. It's absolute truth. You hear a lot of people talking about what they call truth. They say, well, that's my truth, that's your truth. I'm not interested in your truth. I want to know what God's truth is. And God's truth is found in the word of the living God. And Jesus told the truth about all that we need to know for our soul. You notice something here. Justice to the Gentiles. The message wasn't just to the Jews. You need to understand that in this context, this is profound. But for Gentiles too. This has been God's intent from the beginning. From the very beginning, he told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed did you not know being the redeemer of the Jews wasn't a sufficient enough task for the servant of the Lord I want to show you a verse that you were probably meditating on <laughs> Isaiah 49 Go there with me. Let me show you a text. 
God is speaking here about his servant, Messiah, Jesus. Isaiah 49. Now I want to give you time to get there because I want you to see this. Have you found it? That's not very resounding. <laughs> Look in your table of contents and you can find it there. That's okay. That's why it's there. In case you don't know exactly where it is, you might look there and find it. Turn the page, whatever it is, and you got it, right? That makes sense to me. Isaiah 49. He's speaking God the Father to his servant. Verse 6, he says, verse 6, you there? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Stop there for a moment. Too small, literally too light. It's below the capacity of, and dignity of his servant. That's what the Father is saying to his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is below your capacity. You can do more. It's below your dignity. You have greater dignity. Therefore, back here in the text, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What God the Father is saying to his servant, son, I'm going to give you a, a universal reach. Because you have the capacity to do it. And it's in keeping with your dignity. That's why Gentiles, Gentiles have been included of God. You know, there's a woman who's a Samaritan. She was a mixture of Gentile blood and Jewish blood. And you know, the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, sadly, for a number of reasons. But in John 4, 26, Jesus revealed to that woman, that Samaritan woman, that he is Messiah. Messiah. Now, back in our main text here verse 19 of Matthew 12 the next heading the gentleness of God's servant the gentleness of God's servant verse 19 he will not quarrel may I stop at the comma here Messiah is described in negative terms what he will not be like he will not quarrel quarrel epizo is the word in the original he will not wrangle he will not brawl next word is nor cry out to shout or scream excitedly he will not do that the word here uh, rendered not cry out uh, refers to the sound of tyranny like a Nazi soldier yelling schnell, schnell schnell, in English what it means for the German is fast or quick 
And they would yell that to terrorize citizens, Jews, of course, of newly conquered cities, commanding them to run onto a waiting train to a concentration camp. That's the idea. Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus spoke with dignity and control. You will not see him in the Gospels when he's interacting with people, yelling at folk. His dignity, his control. He wasn't a revolutionary. Keep that in mind. Jesus wasn't a revolutionary. He didn't come here to overthrow the government. He didn't come here to partake in doing that sort of thing. He had the power to overthrow the Romans. He didn't do it. He didn't come for that. Be wary of people who take the name of Jesus to co-opt it so uh, they can have some spiritual, in their mind, legitimacy to attempt to do things that they shouldn't do toward the U.S. government. Amen. I'm just telling you all the truth. No. Somebody said, let's go, uh, let's stick Jesus' name, let's go throw, throw the government. What you need to do is run from them. Say, uh, I'll pray for you, that maybe the Lord will help you, but I'm not having a part in that with you. Jesus was no revolutionary. Let me tell you how he established this kingdom. By speaking words of peace and truth to sinners. You see that throughout the Gospels. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 17 says this, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Ecclesiastes 9, 17. Jesus didn't do that. His voice would not be heard in the street saying this yelling and shouting. He didn't do that. Compassion and conquest of God's servant is our next heading. Verse 20 says about God's servant, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Uh, these are metaphors for people. In ancient times, let me explain the background. A reed was made into a flute-like instrument, and it played soft music. And shepherds would do that, and they would sit there and play their flutes and while away the time in their shepherding. When the um, reed was battered and no longer made music, it was discarded. Similarly, when light burned down to the end of the wick, began to smoke. And it was no longer useful for providing light. Guess what? It was extinguished. And what this is saying about Messiah is that people who are weak and considered useless by society are depicted here. The Pharisees viewed such people as worthless. They get rid of you when they consider you useless. 
I talked to a young man just a couple of days ago. And as we engaged in the conversation, he told me that his wife left him. I said, why? He's a young guy and took their six-month-old. I said, why? He said, well, I, um, I'm sick a lot. And she was done. I said, how sad is that? She saw him as useless. Are oh, you sick? Oh, you sick? I'm, I'm getting out of here. That's the way the world does, people. Discard you in a minute. And he said, so much for, for better or for worse. Jesus will not discard people like this. He will have mercy on them when they come to him in their weakness, when they come poor in spirit, when they're weary and heavy laden. The Savior, by means of salvation, he restores and rekindles such people. It's what he does. The very contrast with what the powerful do. Jesus said, come unto me. I'll change your life. He's going to do it until he leads justice to victory. Ultimately, righteousness will win. I want you to know that ultimately, righteousness will win. In this world, it looks like always people get by with stuff. I know they, some, they, they have to give an account. They do pay a penalty. seems like some get away. But ultimately, righteousness will win. The word here in our text indicates that word victory, nikos in the original, and nikos is the word from which we get Nike. Long before there's a Nike brand. Nikos, Jesus, is the victor. When Messiah comes and reigns, justice will prevail universally. And you need to understand that. You'll have some justice now along the way, but you're not going to have full justice until Jesus comes. Men can't pull it off. I'm glad for there's some justice as we go along by the grace of God and his sovereignty. He does allow that, but you're not going to have full blanket universal justice everywhere until the Lord Jesus comes and it reigns right here on this planet. So I'm just telling you the truth. If you're waiting for everything to turn out all perfect and all right in this life, you're going to be waiting a long time. It'll bury you first. And I'm going to tell you something. Gentiles have hope. Hope in him. That's where our hope lies. God's servant will not fail. His triumph is certain. 
and believers are on the right side. That's what I love. And that's what I'm thankful for. That I'm on the right side. Belong to Jesus. So all these blessings will be mine and will be yours forevermore. Thank God for God's servant. I'm glad it wasn't our servant. Because if he were our servant, we'd ask him, go do this, go do that. Would you do the other thing? And Jesus said, hold, hold, hold on a minute. I'm God's servant. I do his will for his glory and for eternity. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God and his truth. It's and what it means to the saints. We thank you that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. There is none other. Be no other. He's come. He's died. He's been resurrected. He's coming again. Oh God, our Father, help us to love him more, know his mind and his will better, and serve him more faithfully, and tell the truth about him to a world that needs to hear the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Messiah. Grant that we might be used as your instruments to that end for your glory and for the good of people's souls. And we pray all these things in his glorious name. Amen.